Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Everybody, and welcome back. Next up, we've got Alexis Miller from our friends over at Shell Games, and she's going to be going through database decision-making through your game's life cycle. Uh, yes, it involves numbers, and it's going to be new for a lot of people, but you do need to listen because this is very, very important. So with that, Alexa, Alexis, it's all you. Take Thank you. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Hello, my name is Alexis Miller, not Alexa, like the Amazon, although that, uh, that mistake happens a lot these days. And I'm going to share some of my experiences on database decision making throughout the life cycle of your game. So to be honest, nothing I'm gonna share today is exactly top secret, but there, there's just so much data out there that it can be overwhelming. It can be frustrating. Um, often it might not feel like a priority compared to other things that you have to worry about. So I'm hoping to highlight some of the areas that I think are the most important to create a successful game. I'll share some free resources that I use, as well as examples where you can take publicly available data one step further. And everything I'm sharing are things that have been done by a single person, uh, which is me. So uh, you don't need a data scientist or an entire research team to be able to utilize data during your development. And you'll also notice that when I talk about data, uh, it's not just numbers per se. A lot of it's actually qualitative um, and things that might feel a little bit more familiar. So regardless of where you are in your current development cycle, I hope that at least one of the topics today will inspire you to use data in a new or improved way in your process. So I'll talk about some of my experiences and lesson learned about the topics that you see here. So learning from your competitors, testing early concepts, target audience analysis, testing player perceptions, sales projections, and then post-launch dealing with the mountain of data, paying attention to discounts, and creating a data-friendly culture. So here we go. A quick intro. This is my first time presenting at this conference, so I'm super excited to be here. And thank you, Dan and Jay, for the awesome setup and platform for doing this. As I said, my name is Alexis Miller. I'm the Director of Product Management for Shell Games. We are located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a little overcast today, not surprisingly. Uh, I'm really lucky to be working at Shell. I have been here for over two years now, and I was the first person to join the studio in a, a strictly product-related role. Uh, I have been working in product management for digital products, including games, for almost eight years. So I've worked on three mobile apps, a website portal for healthcare patients, and most recently, three virtual reality games that are live in stores. 
one VR game that we just announced yesterday called Lost Recipes. It's going to be a really cool cooking game coming to Quest. Uh, and of course, there's other exciting projects that are in the works. So regardless of what types of games you're working on or how many you worked on the past, the only thing worse than your game not selling well is when your game gets bad reviews. So we all want to avoid this. So even if your game is selling well, it always stings when you get bad reviews, especially if the feedback is something that could have changed during development if only you had known this feedback earlier. So this is precisely why data is so important to the success of your game. You're given this incredible opportunity, the opportunity to learn what your players think before you launch your game. Data can help you to learn what types of games players like before you even commit to developing past an early concept or idea. So don't just rely on your gut or your personal experience. And yes, I know that a lot of us do that. So as game developers, you know, we're generally obsessed with games. And so working in this profession, we're, we're all guilty of thinking that if we like something in the game, or we think something in there is, you know, is common knowledge or easy to understand, then it must be that way for our players too, right? So I'm, I'm telling you, it's important, super important to take a step back and acknowledge that we all have biases and preferences and our expertise as game developers are not the same as our players. So there's incredible value in looking at data and getting feedback from people other than your teammates, your family members, or yourself. There are really valuable insights, criticisms, new ideas and aha moments that can only come from fresh eyes. Equally important is that when these data curveballs come your way, it is extremely important to be open-minded about what the data is telling you. So please listen. So first, let's look at some of the earliest phases of development. So you have a prototype or a concept that you're excited about, but how do you know whether anyone will buy your game and if they'll enjoy it or not? Well, the best predictor of future behavior is looking at past behavior. So learning as much as you can about players' past behavior, for example, what games they've already bought, what they thought about those games, is an extremely important opportunity to get data to inform your decision about whether or not to move forward or how you might pivot or change plans early. Learning as much as possible about your competitors is critical at this phase. Is there even a market for the type of game you wanna make? Is anyone else with a similar game doing well? Is the market totally flooded? Are there, are there opportunities where there's not something in the market? So despite the challenges of how few companies share their sales data, there are a few tricks to get useful insights. So I wanna to briefly touch on the first two bullets here before I move on and say that, you know, there are already great resources out there about ways to use reviews to estimate the number of sales of competitor games. So the first is a really simple one that I use a lot. You know, when I'm tracking competitor games, you know, of course I'm writing down the number of reviews that are currently in the store for that game. But it's important to make sure you divide that number by the days since it launched. Because obviously a game that came out 
a month ago versus two years ago, um, it's going to be a little bit skewed. So while that number, it's basically a ratio, it's not telling you exactly how many games were sold. It is giving you an idea of how well that game is doing because the higher the ratio basically means the more reviews per day and the lower ratio is a lower number of reviews per day. Uh, the second bullet here is what using industry estimates. So what, what I've seen and tested with our own data with games on Steam in particular is taking the number of reviews for the game and multiplying that by 40 up to 70. And so that can give you at least a range of how many units that game may have sold. Um, that, that's definitely a, a really good one that I wanted to, to point out. So, you know, again, make sure when you're looking at these numbers, though, to sort of baseline your data by making sure you know when the game launched and sort of accounting for, for that in your calculations. So the next two things. So besides estimating sales off of the number of reviews, you can also sometimes find actual sales numbers shared publicly if you look for them in news or social media. Because particularly when games are selling well, companies, including Shell Games, we've done this, uh, will put out a press release with numbers relating to their success. So this is a great opportunity to do some quick math and use this data to help you understand your market, your competitors' successes, and, and also for future sales projections. You might use these as baselines. So the example I have shared here um, is a real story that came out <clears throat> February 2021 of Beat Saber saying, hey, we sold 4 million copies. So if you just take a quick look at their game page, you can see, oh, OK. They launched on May 21st, 2019. So this means that it took them approximately 625 days to sell 4 million copies. So this is equivalent to selling an average of about 2.3 million units per year. So, hey, look at that. This is much better than trying to estimate the number of sales based on reviews, right? You know, so in this case, this is also an important reality check about the size of the VR market in 2021 considering that this has been one of the best-selling games in VR since its release. It also can help you, as I mentioned, when you're thinking about projections and what's realistic. So another way to understand the market and your competition is to look at top-selling charts or other rankings on public pages. And I would guess that all of you are probably doing this already, right? So I'm not sharing anything new right, right now. There's certainly, in addition to the sites themselves, there are third-party companies that will republish, collate, or analyze this data, including SteamDB, which is what's shown on the right here. Uh, but also, most major platforms have some sort of top sellers chart that gets updated fairly often. So what I'm showing on the screen here, on the left, is the Oculus or Meta Quest daily top sellers chart. And then the SteamDB weekly top sellers chart on the right. So, I mean, even without doing any, any math or any numbers, right, you can just take a look at this frequently, see how often things change, what genres are appearing often, you know, what their capsule art looks like. Um, again, like this is 
this is kind of a no-brainer, right? What I think is more interesting to talk about is, you know, if you have the time and additional curiosity, you can also mine this public data for more information. So this is an example that I did where I've been tracking the Quest top sellers. So basically, I created a spreadsheet and at least once a week, I'll open the latest top sellers list on Quest. And I'll literally just write down the title of all 50. So they have top 50 is what's on their page. So I'll write down the title of all 50 top sellers in a spreadsheet along with the date. And honestly, like even if I get too busy to keep track of everything every day, I've still been able to get great insights with as few as five or six data points. So in this example, I tracked two of our games, I expect you to die and until you fall. And the impact that a well-promoted discount event had on their sales in relation to other games. So basically what you're looking at on this chart is the higher the line on the graph, the better the game is selling. So think of like that top line would be if it was in the number one bestseller position. So in this example, there was an event on April 21st. It was a big sale. So I actually didn't track data on that, that particular day, but we were like way down before then. So what we're looking at here, we have April 26th, 27th, 28th, and 29th. Then you see, so on the 29th, basically what this is showing is this includes data from the prior seven days. So April 29th was the last day that included sales data from April 21st. So, so this, this line for these two games that were on sale, this is showing the impact, the lift that that sale gave us. So looking at that impact, you also see, then it takes a steep dive down uh, on May 3rd. So, on May 3rd, sales had declined so much that our position in the top 50 chart dropped about 30 places for both I expect you die and until you fall. So that's that's fine and good, right? But I have the, the actual sales data there. So what's more interesting here is the insight I could get from a competitor game that otherwise I know nothing about. So the game In Death Unchained is the blue line in this chart. So if you look at the blue line, it followed a nearly identical path as our two games. So basically like that tells me like, I know how many games they sold during that time period. But what's more interesting is that In Death Unchained was not part of the discount event on April 21st. There was something else going on here. So a little investigation uncovered that they released a free DLC update on April 21st. So basically I was able to conclude that their DLC generated about the same lift in sales as if the game were on a discount. <laughs> and it, it didn't have a long lasting effect beyond that. So anyway, I just shared this because I think it's, it's something that's super interesting that again, with only, I have five data points here, um, we're able to really see some interesting stuff. Okay, so, in addition to learning from your competitors about how well they're selling and what the overall market looks like, the prototype and concept phase is an excellent way to analyze how players respond to your competitors' games. 
Some extremely easy but valuable data collection techniques are listed here. So, you know, the big thing here in terms of player reviews, what did players like the most about the game? So the graphics, because it was multiplayer, because it was challenging. And how does this compare to your plans and assumptions? What did they not like about the game? This is where it's especially important to look at games that are clearly not selling well to see if you can draw some broad conclusions about why the game is not selling well. You know, make sure you filter reviews so you see those one stars or thumbs down reviews. I actually copy them into a spreadsheet myself, and then I have a column for positive and I have a column for negative. And basically it allows me to quantify some of that feedback. So you can kind of see trends emerging in the sea of reviews. Because even if you're reading reviews every day, like it, it is kind of hard to, to pick out what, what are actually the trends. So again, just throw it in a spreadsheet, super helpful. So, you know, I, I also want to point out that we've had some, you know, lessons learned where the only competitors that we really focused on were games that were extremely popular or extremely successful, like let's say Beat Saber in, in the VR world, if that was the only game we were looking at. So without looking at games that maybe flopped or might just be doing okay, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. So, you know, make sure that you get out your galoshes and wade in the muck for a few minutes to get a reality check and take advantage of the wide spectrum of data available. On the critical side, um, OpenCritic and Metacritic are great sites to use because they're basically a one-stop shop for looking at a bunch of different critical reviews in one place. Um, you can take the same approach here and try to quantify some of the trends in critical reviews. The ultimate goal is to help you to prioritize features and learn from others' mistakes and shortcomings. So in your never-ending quest to learn more about other games in order to help make design and business decisions about your game. There's always a lot to learn. So one of the ways that I learned about successes and failures of other games is by directly interviewing or sending survey questions to players about competitors' games. You know, there's often questions that you have you'll never be able to find by just reading game reviews. But there are far fewer constraints to your curiosity when you're able to directly ask your most burning questions to players. So this data gathering can occur throughout your development cycle as well. When we conduct play tests with players, we'll actually often just make strategic small talk with our play testers about like, hey, what games have you been playing lately? And like, oh, really? Like, why did you like that game so much? So don't be shy. Um, most players love talking about games they've played. And they might actually be more honest about what they think about other games than your games. So yeah, cool. Check it out. So now that you've learned from all the mistakes that other games have made, and you've prioritized the details that really matter to players, it's even more important to test your early concepts directly with players. There's a lot of great insight that you can get from players before you even have a game to play. So understanding their expectations, assumptions, preferences, and aversions early will decrease your risk as you're making big decisions for your games. So here are some things that we have actually tested uh, in very early stages of our product. 
So in our case, we created online surveys and remote video call interviews with players through a platform we use called usertesting.com. Um, you could do it in a variety of ways to get their feedback on what really was just ideas or early concepts. So for example, you know, even a few sentences of a game description could be tested. If you have a main character or characters, plural in a game, uh, and you're trying to decide the direction that character should take, just put some sketches of characters in front of players and ask them questions about each one. Environment artwork is another interesting thing to test. Um, so we've taken a piece of art and we tested four different uh, color schemes to just see what emotions were elicited. So here's a, a specific example of data that we generated from an early concept survey sent to 30 players online. So we wanted input on a hero character. And so we created eight different sketches of potential hero characters. We asked questions related to different traits or characteristics of each character. So you can see the results here showing how players answered the questions about which character of the eight was the most compelling, which was the cutest, which is the bravest, and which looked most like a hero. So you can see character one and character seven both tested really well for several of the traits that we are targeting. But if you look at the blue bar, which is the hero bar, you know, there's a pretty low level of blue on the graph, which means that, you know, basically we wanted this character to look like a hero and was actually testing as being more like a villain. So players were further asked to just describe in their own words what was most compelling about each character. So for character one, we learned, you know, color scheme and their character's eyes really came out as a trend. While character seven, uh, people often said the smile of that character. Um, you know, another super useful question that we asked in this test, again, just based on these sketch characters was, you know, well, what do you think the target age range is for this game based on the artwork? This helped us to avoid a direction that may have been perceived as too childish when we knew our target audience was gonna be at least 15 years old. Okay, so now you're full steam ahead, you're, you're in production, you're in development. Um, so let's talk about some more data gathering opportunities that can come later in the development process. So target audience is an interesting one because you obviously want an idea of your target audience early, but it's also hard to pinpoint your target audience until you've decided some important aspects of the core game loop some of the major features, the look and feel. So personally, like, I still struggle with the best time to do this. And I would suggest in an ideal world, this is revisited multiple times throughout both the early concept and the production phase. That being said, there's some great data sources out there to help you understand gamer personas and market viability. And it's definitely an art and science to try to cast the right net not too wide, meaning, oh, the game is for everyone, and also not too narrow, like, this game is for 14-year-old girls who like turtles and racing. So this slide just includes some of the resources that I regularly use when doing research on our target audience, um, when I'm looking for player personas or market data. Quantic Foundry has collected data from over 850,000 players 
to come up with gamer motivation profiles that are really interesting. They offer some super uh, useful reports for free by signing up on their website. Um, and they also often give talks at conferences like GDC. Chris Sikowski is another great resource um, who happens to also be speaking at this conference. Uh, so definitely check out his stuff. He's got great tips for marketing your game and data about how certain genres do better than others on Steam, etc. He's got a great freemium model with some free and some paid content. Uh, as with Simon Carlos with his company Game Discover Co. Uh, great data for indie game developers, including a free newsletter and a paid newsletter. And then uh, lastly on the right, a resource that I've been heavily using uh, since Shell Games has been developing so many virtual reality games is a report that Oculus put out in 2020 that defines seven player personas and how each one is attracted to the VR market. Uh, so they did research with over a thousand gamers and they've categorized that data into the seven personas. The report gives me information on each persona such as um, gender, income, age, other demographics, their personality traits, uh, genres that they enjoy, descriptions of sort of what they care about when gaming. So here's a quick look at some data that Oculus provided in their report and how I added additional value to it. So for each game that we started to develop, I've been reading through the pages of this report and trying to identify which of the seven personas was most likely to purchase our game. But Guess what? There is actually so much data in this report that I mined it for additional insight. So I created a whole new set of graphs and charts, including this one, um, using numbers from the Oculus report. But I just kind of formatted it in different ways to answer other questions that I had. So by looking at each of the seven personas and then narrowing down to the three personas that Oculus defined as what they called VR target, I looked at what genres each persona liked most and then basically, you know, stacked them on this chart. So this helped me to answer the question, which genres are currently or in the near future going to sell the best in the VR market and specifically on the Quest platform. So what I did wasn't rocket science, but I still think it gave us, again, even more useful information beyond how they presented it in their report. So in this graph, you can see all three of the the three personas, so steady gamer, play to win gamer, dedicated gamer, um, they all really like first person shooters. Maybe that's not super shocking, <laughs> but um, would you also predict that those three groups like action, driving games, and sports games almost as much? Um, but they like them a lot more than role playing or action or fighting or puzzles. So lots of great information out there. Okay. So, you know, there's tons of opportunities to research your competitors, market, your target audience. Um, but what else can you do while you're still developing your game that's going to help you later to sell your game better? There are incredible product and marketing insights that can come through the playtesting process. So I'm going to share a list of questions that we've used with multiple games now, in addition to suggestions of store assets and marketing materials that you can and should test while you still have time to make changes. So I mean, playtesting in general is a huge goldmine of data. And I could spend an entire talk talking about playtesting. It is so valuable. 
But what I want to emphasize here is adding a handful of questions to your play tests. It'll give you extremely useful information when you start creating your store assets, your metadata, and your marketing materials. So the questions I have listed here can give you great insight throughout the life cycle of your game. And they really only take a few extra minutes to add to your, you know, other kind of typical playtesting, you know, more design-focused playtesting questions. Perhaps one of the most useful questions that we've asked in our playtests was, how would you describe this game to your friends and family? So the visual on the left here shows the results from tests that we did while developing I Expect You to Die 2, which is indeed a puzzle game that includes action, mystery, and spies. So, you know, the larger size of the text, the more important, or sorry, the more often we heard those responses from our playtesters. So we learned to double down on those words in our marketing and communications about the game. I mean, what better source to use for describing your game than from players themselves? So the answer to this question was also great because by asking it early in the process, we use it like pillars or like our North Star to make sure that we are consistently hearing answers that we expected and there were no unpleasant surprises. Um, we also used, when we were pricing our, our game, we absolutely did research on what other games were selling for, but an additional data point that helped us was to just directly ask playtesters what they'd be willing to pay for the game. So even asking players to suggest keywords, um, again, excellent opportunity to get information from the people who are gonna be buying your game. So after you've asked the right questions during playtesting, you're now ready to test your store assets and marketing materials directly with players. So this is where we make sure the first impressions are yielding the results that we want. Where we're building a very straight road on all the many paths to conversion. So we wanna meet player expectations to appeal to the right audience before they even start playing our game. So the saying goes, looks can be deceiving. Don't accidentally deceive your players. Uh, I have to give credit to Chris Sikowski again, because he's always hammering home this point. Test your marketing materials and store assets. It's super important and also pretty easy. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher, and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business. Now, think about all the images and the words out there that players see on a daily basis. It can be an ocean of information, so you have to get their attention quickly. So some valuable tests that we've done uh, that are listed here, we've tested our game website, digital ads, the store description, uh, the game title, keywords, and of course, the capsule art. 
We use a remote playtesting platform called usertesting.com, but you can test with players through Google Forms or you know, live video calls for free. There's lots of options. You can recruit players through Discord channels, social media, your email list. Um, you know, the best part is that you don't need to do any of this in person. You can post it on Google Drive, email it as an attachment. Uh, however you do it, you will not regret getting this data, I promise. This is one of my favorite examples uh, of a game asset that we tested before launch. So for I Expect You to Die 2, we tested our capsule art image with players who were who were new to the franchise. So they you know, didn't have uh, experience from the first game. So we initially showed them the image on the left and we asked them what they thought they would do in this game. We asked what genre they thought it was, what jumped out at them. And most answers were what we expected, but we found that some players mistakenly focused on the food in the picture. And, and they thought this game was maybe a cooking game. It most definitely is not a cooking game. So despite the popularity of the food with both our fans and our development team, we removed the food from this image and added in a more puzzly element. So another minor change is that we also responded to feedback about lightning in the window. Um, so you'll notice, you know, in the image on the right that we emphasize the lightning even more in our revision. So the, the image on the right uh, is sort of our final version that is live in the store now. <clears throat> so projecting and budgeting for how well your game will sell may be one of the hardest parts of your data journey. There's so much pressure to do well and make a profit as well as pressure to be accurate in your sales projections. And these two pressures are often in opposition to one another. But don't give up. I know there are entire talks about how to set sales projections, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, but I will share just some high-level steps and tips that I hope uh, will be helpful. So I intentionally made this slide try to speak for itself. Um, I know I've often felt overwhelmed with the best way to project sales. And I've not landed on one perfect technique yet, but I realized that I've sort of followed these same basic steps um, each time. So I think the most important suggestion I have is to really try to use multiple baselines when creating your projections. So, you know, in other words, looking at your competitor games that are selling well and some that are not selling well and, and kind of saying, okay, we're going to be between these two. So, you know, at high level, we have identifying sales numbers from other game as a baseline, um, then coming up with an average units per week or units per month that you think is realistic. And then number three, you know, sort of adjusting that average based on seasonality or when you think your game will go on sale. And then lastly, is just, you know, setting clear expectations with your team or funders, whoever you work with that really needs to know this um, and, and talk with them about how confident you feel and maybe how often you'll revisit these numbers. Um, you know, just, you know, seasonality and discounts are, are a really important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about projections. So, you know, 
they're, they're a lot more meaningful and accurate when I'm able to take into account the seasonality of when sales are typically strong or weak. You know, seasonality is certainly a moving target. It changes slightly year to year. It can be thrown off by big unexpected discounts. So the numbers here are just an example. Um, you know, the exact numbers change from platform to platform and from year to year. So don't come back to me and say like, oh, hey, our, our numbers aren't like this. Um, but the point is just to give this as an example. And, you know, in the notes section, I kind of point out some of the more predictable trends, like, yes, you should expect your best month to be in December, as well as when you launch. So you've launched the game. Honestly, most of your analysis and the important, important data um, hopefully has happened by now. But, you know, now there's there's just like a mountain of data, right? So here's just some thoughts on prioritizing the data that you're tracking and some steps you can take to share with your team to enhance a culture of using data to influence your game development. There is a lot of data that you can track, especially if your game comes out on multiple platforms. Then there's inconsistencies between how each platform tracks certain data. So like, one platform will define that revenue by removing the returns. Well, another platform will not remove the returns. So you've defined that data and subtract it yourself. So it's easy to get overwhelmed and confused. Um, I've been there. My advice is really to prioritize and be consistent with what you're tracking, even if it's just a few key metrics once a week. The consistency in my mind is more important than what metrics you're tracking. Uh, you know, I also suggest definitely take advantage of the platform portal data instead of waiting until the money is in your bank account, um, even though that data is not perfect. Just, you know, don't wait. We already talked a bit about discounts, but I just want to double down on why they're so important. I mean, discounts move units and make way more revenue than, than I even expected, honestly. So, you know, the point here is just about tracking those discounts. Like, it is super important to just track those details, when they happen, what dates. Um, you know, you can see here, the bar on the left is just the average number of units per day over, this was about a period of like a year for one of our games. And then the bar in the middle is the average units per day when it was at a discount. Like, this is, this is huge, right? So... Pay attention to discounts. Um, here's another reason why it's important to track that data. Again, the dates that it happened. So this is a graph that I created for one of our games where you could visibly see when the game was on sale. So I, you know, I added red on the dates when it was on sale, probably without the colors, so you could still figure it out. And even though I instinctively knew that discounts impacted our game sales, having the ability to, to look at it, data like this um, super important when you're trying to make decisions about participating in discounts and promotions. So lastly, you know, there's often discussion in our studio about how much data to share and with whom. And while there's certain teammates who need to know as much data as possible, I also don't want to drown other people in data who have another job to do. But if you watch this talk, then you probably care about data too, and you may want other people on your team to care about it. So I'm ending on the note about the benefits of boosting a data-friendly culture at your company or within your team. I'm not saying a data-only culture, 
where there's no place for creativity or intuition or personal experience. I'm also not suggesting to only share the positive data or only share the negative data, but really stress that the more you share data, both good and bad, with your team, you know, the more likely that it'll be respected and sought after when faced with making tough decisions, and then eventually become a valued and expected part of the process. So, you know, there are lots of easy ways to share data and lots of types of data that can that people will actually be really excited about. So like one of the best things that I did when I started was to create a Slack channel with a feed of all of our Steam reviews. People were really excited about it, like way more than I expected. And the channel's open to anyone at the company. It's much easier to track down the reviews that way than to like go to a Steam page um, where you, you know, whenever you have extra time. Another example um, shown here was that I presented the results of a full game play test to the entire development team that was working on that title. So lots of, uh, lots of opportunities. So regardless of where you are in your current development cycle, what your role is at the studio, um, I hope that at least one of the topics today inspired you to use or share data more often in your process. I really don't think that you'll regret it. Thank you so much. Well, that was excellent. <laughs> how, are, uh, how are you doing? Great, great. Excellent. It looks like I uh, have something messed up on my screen here real quick. Let me fix this. Take um, I, I've, got some, I've got some questions. So All right. there we go. That's much better. Oh, okay. So we have one from the chat from John White on YouTube. Do you find different art keywords and phrases work better on different platforms? For example, what performs well on Facebook in a Facebook ad might not be the best for a Steam store page. Yes, I agree. Um, there's there's definitely differences, particularly even with keywords, you know, different platforms might not allow you to have the same keyword. Um, so like, you know, for us, for example, in the VR market, there are a totally different set of keywords on Steam than there are on the Quest store. Um, so we definitely try to keep that in mind when, when we're testing. Um, also for digital ads, we've seen that, that we have different success on different platforms. So, um, you know, I don't have an answer to say like, on this platform, this will do better that goes across the board, but it is important to, to be mindful um, when you're looking for that information and testing it. Right, right, for sure. Okay, let's see here. We have more questions. Let's just start at the top here. Do you see an advantage between publishing exclusively on the Oculus Store, Steam, or others? Well, um, Exclusivity. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a good question. So far, we have not we we've not recently published exclusively. Um, we do have a title that is coming out exclusively on on Quest. Uh, Lost Recipes is going to be coming out there. Um, I think I think it depends on the genre for sure. Um, you know, what we're seeing right now in the VR market is that the Quest store is, is where it's at, but because the market is changing so quickly, 
um, you know, you you want to be relevant on as many platforms as you can, right? So, particularly with PlayStation VR, um, our numbers are really low there right now, but it's important for us to be on that platform because we hope that when PSVR 2 comes out, um, that, you know, we'll already be there. Players will already be familiar with our, our studio and our titles and that that could have really important future sales implications. So I guess my roundabout answer is if you have unlimited resources, then yes, like be on every platform. Um, when you don't have limited resources, it is more difficult sometimes to make those decisions. Um, but we haven't, we haven't been ex exclusive before. So I can't like wave, you know, jump up and down and say like, yes, like you should do that. Um, that's just based on, on our experience. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So why do you think that it's lower on PlayStation right now? Why do you think your sales? Because uh, the uh, PlayStation VR is not it's good. It's yeah. Old. You know, it's been out for over five years. Um, and you know, the number of new headsets that they've sold has really, uh, has really declined over the years. So I, I, I think that it's just become a, a pretty small market. I mean, what we see is we sell the most games when, mm -hmm. when someone has newly bought a headset. So, you know, you buy a new, you get a new quest headset at Christmas and then, you know, the next day you're buying, you know, two, three, four, five games. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in the case of, of PlayStation VR, because there's not a lot of new headsets that are being sold there, that directly impacts the the game sales. Oh, that makes sense. And because everyone's waiting for the new uh, PlayStation yeah, headset, yeah, right? Exactly. exactly. Well, I have a Quest too. I love my Quest games. And I've got an Oculus Rift as well. But will I ever set that thing up again? No, I will never <laughs> ever set it up ever again. It's way too much of a pain when the Oculus Quest, when the Quest 2, I can just put on and go, yeah. and then, oh, I'm sitting here, or I'm over there, or I can do it. Oh, I just got to move. And they made it so easy to just it set up so anywhere. Easy. I know. I know. I feel you. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's just, you know, I just wish it could. I mean, I know it's very powerful, right? I just need the Steam link to uh, the whatever link to so I can play like, because I have Rick and Morty and then, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so here we go. Here's a question from Discord. For smaller teams, do you recommend self-publishing -publish VR games or finding a publisher? Well. I'm, I'm going to say the infamous indie game business answer, and that is, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think... If you can, if you can do it yourself, um, there's certainly benefits to that um, from the perspective of, of getting more of a cut of your games. Um, but, you know, I definitely see at Shell Games, which is a larger independent studio, the, the benefits of having a awesome marketing team, you know, of having someone like me that's completely like my whole job is just dedicated to saying, okay, you know, what other data can we be tracking or what other uh, play testing questions can we add? So if you can, if you can take advantage of more 
um, more things like marketing um, and and just getting the game out there in front of people that maybe wouldn't otherwise see it, then a publisher could be a way to go. But there's definitely, <laughs> I think you're right, Dan. It's It depends. It depends. Um, yeah. And, right. and maybe our games is expensive, right? So it, it is risky, and that's a serious thing to, to take into consideration. Uh, advice for indie teams looking to self-publish. Um, I would say my my best advice would be make sure you're on the Quest Store. Um, it, it, it has just been a game changer for us, honestly. And, and I think it's only going to grow. Um, I, I think... In particular, the, the holidays are the times that we've seen the last two years when the market has really grown the most. Um, so I'm really interested to see what's going to happen this year. But I just I think hands down, like that's the way to to make money is to make sure you're on the Quest store. I wonder what it's going to be called here pretty soon. Probably not going to be called Quest. I mean, I don't know. Well, it's oh. sort of shifted to MetaQuest already. In MetaQuest. Yeah. MetaQuest. Oh, yeah. oh, here, this is, Jay's got a good one. Are there better platforms for marketing VR games? Facebook versus Twitter versus TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so let me think. So we, we have had some of the best success on Reddit. Um, and I want to say Facebook is second to that. Um, that's just been our experience. Um, so I would Reddit and Facebook, that. huh? Mm-hmm. All right, let's yeah, dive better into better than Twitter, um, better than TikTok. Let's dive into a couple of other things. Any tips on how to create the player personas? Ooh, on creating the player personas. So, I mean, the tough thing about creating them from scratch is that you need a lot of data. So, I guess my recommendation is to try to use what's already out there, like some of the examples that I shared. Um, Cause it's a pretty, it's a pretty complex process to come up with personas. Like even at a prior job that I had, I worked in a healthcare company where um, we were working on, I was with a team that was working on personas and like, it took like a year of doing research to come up with usable personas. So, yeah, sorry, that's not the answer you wanted. <laughs> well, it, it's a good answer, though. It is, it's an answer, right? It's a realistic answer, and that makes sense. Yeah. Um, here we go. Let's get into playtesters. What's the best way to get playtesters? You mentioned the platform that you guys use. Yes. Do you use anything um, else? I think, so if, if you already have um, people that are fans of your company or your game, you know, asking them to, you know, get the word out to uh, friends and family could be great. Um, I would say, you know, even joining, joining discords of other communities so that you're getting people that might be, you know, fresh eyes that are new to your game or new to your studio. Um, You could even be strategic in terms of if there's a particular genre of your game, you know, maybe you join a discord for a game of one of your competitors and you've got people from that group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's, you know, really 
the the best the best is definitely getting naive playtesters. Um, but the the better is just getting someone outside of your studio and your development team. <laughs> Right, like it, that's hard to get like getting, getting somebody that knows nothing about your game, don't tell them anything about it, and then just throw them in there and see what they do. Yes. Right? What yeah. what about uh live streamers? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think they're a little bit less like the typical player, maybe, because they're like so, you know, this is like their life. They're almost like a developer. <laughs> yeah, and then one thing about that is um a lot of live streamers are they act overexcited for things, you know, like you watch somebody eat a hot potato chip and they're like, Oh my God, you know, they're kind of freaking out a little bit, but really it's like, man, that's pretty hot. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I should know I'm a live streamer. So yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of overacting sure. in, in some things. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, that makes sense. Plus you may not want to get your product out to the public, but then again, live streamers love like to be the first people to check out a game. Yeah. First yeah. person to check out a game, have developers in the chat giving mm -hmm. them a hard time, uh, all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> well, players like that too, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, make sure you have a non-disclosure agreement though. I didn't mention that, but that's important. <laughs> Don't tell anybody about anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've actually, like, I've, and embargoes, right? I've got embargoes, so you can't post any. You can play it now, but you can't post content for two weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you just gotta make sure that they do that and put that into their calendars so that they're not posting content before time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this goes to how long before release should you get playtesters? Ooh, that's a great question. So uh, I would say as soon as possible. So what what we have done is we have playtesters really as early as even just having something in a semi-built state that we want to get feedback on. Um, and so for I Expect You to Die 2, for example, that development cycle lasted about two years. And we started playtesting within the first four months. Um, wow. Yeah. And we would playtest about, like, we did about every other week throughout most of the that game. And it would just be like a small piece that you would test at a time. Like, not the whole game, obviously. <laughs> that would be really time-consuming. Um, but it really allows you to get concentrated feedback, get it early, because I've definitely been on projects and, and not so much at shell games, but in previous worlds that I was in, where like you don't want to get data so late that then you can't do anything about it, right? Like the, the feedback's only valuable if you have time built into your schedule to make changes based on that feedback. So I would say as early as possible. And we did also do um, full game play testing. We did <clears throat> almost a year before we finished the game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a little buggy. Like, it wasn't how it looked in its final state. But we had eight players, like, play through the whole game. And they answered qu survey questions for us while they were playing. And then we did a, a live interview with them. Through, um, through a platform like this, you know, just a video call at the end. And it was so helpful. It was awesome. And then we did another full gameplay test when it got closer to the end. And that was really cool because we, we could see how things had improved during that time. 
And also we had an idea at that point, by the second play test we did, the full game play test, we had an idea that like, this is a good indicator of how this is going to do in the real world, right? Because um, it was as close to done as it was going to get. And, and, and again, we got great insight from both of those whole game play tests where we asked people, you know, how much did you enjoy playing this? Uh, would you recommend this to your friends and family? How much would you pay for this? What mm -hmm. keywords would you use? Like very you know, specific things, right? Yeah. That are, you know, it, it's not your primary goal when you're play testing to ask people how much they pay for your game, but it only takes like 10 seconds to ask. Right. So, um, that's awesome. And you know what? I'm going to get this game. It looks awesome. Also, congrats on winning the uh, nominated or you're nominated for the Game Awards Best VR yeah. AR Games. Yeah. That's, right? That's incredible. Yeah. That I've seen Resident Evil 4. You what? I said it's us and we're up against Resident Evil 4, but it's pretty exciting. Yes. Yes. All right. So we got time for one more okay. uh, from John White. Do you get video recordings of playtesters first playthrough? If not, what analytics data do you collect? Yeah, uh, we do. We do get video recordings uh, of all of our playtesting, and you know, again, if you use something like um, if you use something like Google Meet or Zoom, you can do that too, right? You mm -hmm. just have people it, for VR. We're having them cast to their screen, even though it's a standalone device. So we can see on the screen what they're playing and, and that whole session gets recorded. We also have uh, questions that we ask either, you know, some of the tests we do because we have this platform usertesting.com, they can answer, they can take the test on their own time. So we have written questions um, that they, that they answer, but it, it definitely, you know, having the recordings is awesome because you can always go back to it later. Mm -hmm. Right, because yeah. uh, you might yeah. see something, somebody act a certain way that um, you might not even know that they would act that way at all. Yeah. So thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. This, this was an awesome fun. talk. I'm going to go get this game now. And I, and I have to figure out, I have to really, because I did the casting from the quest, right? Because I was yeah. trying to capture it so I could stream it. But it was just a little bit laggy. So oh. I got to figure out how to make that a little bit better so that I can live stream it because... Yeah, I love like I love VR games. I mean, yeah. I love that kind of, uh, and, and I expect you to die. I've seen it come up a few times, but I I never really looked into it because you know I'm busy. So but <laughs> it looks amazing. I, I yeah, it's totally like exactly the kind of games that I like to play. Cool. So if you guys want to get in our Discord, Discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. If you want to hang out in there a little bit and answer some questions, that would be awesome. Great. But we've got to let we got to get out of here. So we have a few more. A few more talks today. Awesome. That's super exciting. So thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.